Well, good morning. It's uh, been a pleasure to be with this church this weekend, actually back with this church. Uh, I was here two years ago. Um, I have to tell you, Brian and Edie Sanders, you are so blessed to have them leading the marriage ministry here. There are a great many churches in the Metroplex that have marriage ministries and are doing a good job, Um, but you guys are among the blessed to be a part of this church, and I sure hope you're taking advantage of the opportunities that they give you through this ministry uh, month after month and year after year. It'd be great. We've been talking about marriage all this weekend with the conference Friday night and Saturday morning. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today. If you're single, you may be thinking, oh, great, this is not for me. Well, I, no, I don't think, I think it is for you. I think there's some principles in what we're going to be talking about that apply to a lot of different kinds of relationships. And so I'll just let you kind of listen in and uh, make those applications as they seem to make sense. It's funny what kids say when you ask them about being in love. How do you know you're in love? One seven-year-old said, well, it's when he puts on cologne and she puts on perfume and they go out and smell each other. <clears throat> yes, that is how it starts. <laughs> we, we would all admit that, right? You know? And then there's the 12-year-old who went to his youth pastor one day and he said, hey, do you know what love is? And the youth pastor thought, this is going to be good. All right, what's love? He said, well, have you ever felt a feeling like a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling like a feeling you've never felt before? That's how you know you're in love. Okay, I can go with that. And then he said, do you know what a kiss is? And the youth pastor said, well, tell me, what is a kiss? And the 12-year-old said, well, it's a mouthful of nothing, really, you know. But it tastes sweet like heaven. And it sounds like a cow pulling her foot out of the mud. That's pretty insightful, wouldn't you agree? Well, a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling like a feeling you've never felt before. Is that a good definition of love? I would suggest to you, no, not at all, not even close. That's just the warm fuzzies, right? That's just the emotions that go along with that. But if we open up 1 Corinthians 13, you would find out real quickly that love is a series of verbs. It's something you do. Sometimes it's something you don't do, but there's definitely an action in it. There's substance to it. If all you have is warm fuzzies, that's going to fizzle pretty fast, and you really don't have any substance that will last. Now, if you do the actions, the warm fuzzies come along for the ride, which is the nice part. And that's often the part that attracts us in the beginning and gets us connected to another individual or pursuing another individual. But we have to develop the substance. Otherwise, there's really not much there. Now, I kind of prefer Hallmark's definition of love over a feeling you feel. I'm sorry, I should back up. Hallmark didn't have a definition of love. They had an ad campaign, but it was a really good one because you remember it. When you care enough to send the very best. You guys realize how old that ad campaign is? Some of you just aged yourselves. You didn't know that. They haven't used that in a decade. Hallmark has not used that. And we all still remember it. Why? Because it was such an effective campaign. Basically, you said, all right, this person is of, of great interest to me, so I'm going to give the best to them, so I'm, of course, going to get a Hallmark card, which was, it it worked, all right? Hallmark went big with that campaign. If we take out the word give and put in the word, excuse me, out the word send and put in the word give, when you care enough to give the very best to another person, the best of what? Well, the best of stuff, maybe, The, the best of Uh, materials, uh, the best, no, the best of you. When you care enough about another person to give the best of you to them, 
I'm thinking that's a pretty good working definition of what love is. Well, when is it in a relationship when you naturally have the willingness to give the best of yourself? I mean, giving the best is one thing, but having the willingness to give the best of yourself is another thing. When is it that you have the natural willingness and you don't even think about it? I mean, you don't calculate it, you don't, you don't chew on it, you don't process it, you just do it. Does anybody know when that is? Dating, right? The big lie. Because here I'm trying to prove to you <laughs> that I'm really somebody awesome and that you'll want to hang out with me. And so we set about to give the best of ourselves to this other person. Think about it. That's exactly what's happening. As I get to travel the country, I've heard some amazing stories about dating and the kinds of crazy, wild things that people will do when they're trying to give the best of themselves. So, for example, I've heard of women who will get up at 4 a.m. and sit in a deer stand and freeze to death with this guy because why she's trying to win his heart she wants him to think she's really cool so she'll go sit in a deer stand even though she thinks that's dumb she'll go fishing even though she thinks a fisherman's a jerk on one end of the line waiting for a jerk on the other end of the line there's nothing there for her except him right and i've heard of guys that will do crazy things like open car doors ladies have you ever heard of this (laughs) it's unbelievable i'm telling you I, i know it's a myth but it's out there i'm telling you Open car doors. Uh, he'll buy a Hallmark card. Of course, it's a Hallmark card. And he'll actually write something in it and then give it to her. I, have you ever heard of this kind of thing? I've heard of men, hold on, who will give up the remote control. This is before marriage, we understand. Because something changes at that point. Once we've kind of you know, caught you and you're not going anywhere, we don't have to give up the remote anymore. Because we don't have to give the best of ourselves, you know, and then isn't that ironic, right? First comes love, then comes romance, then comes the willingness to give the best of yourself, and then comes the number one destroyer of the willingness to give the best of yourself, marriage, right? Because something changes at that point in and, and all of us. Um, before the wedding, we've got the hunter-expector thing going on. Men are the hunters, you women are the expectors. Now, this isn't rocket science, and I'm not sure it's every person in the world but maybe there's something in this you can relate to. Ladies, if you don't know this about us, we're hunters. It's, it's, it's kind of our approach to life, our strategy to life. We don't go shopping. You go shopping. We go hunting, right? We go with you to get a shirt, and we walk into the first store, and we see one, and we go, there it is, shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. We can get that, take it, and be home watching football in five minutes. No, you want to go shopping, so... We go from that one to this one to this one to this one to this one, and then we go back to that one and buy the one we could have shot a long time ago. Well, we kind of do this about you. See, before the wedding, we hunt you. We set our sights on you, and we're attracted to you, and so we give the best of ourselves to you, and we're trying to win your heart. And once we've shot you, killed you, taken you home, put your head on the wall, we can't hunt you anymore. (laughs) There's a law against that sort of thing. We've caught our limit, you see. So we have to hunt other things. It's just the way it works. Um, Like our career. Like um, that bass boat I've always wanted. Uh, Like that promotion. Well, you're the, you ladies, you're the expector side of this dynamic. And see, before the wedding, uh, you're expecting things to continue to grow and develop. And 
Gary Smalley said years ago that women have a built-in marriage manual. They just kind of know what it takes naturally to do relationships. I think there's something to that. And so you know while you're dating and giving the best of yourself of how to improve and deepen the relationship. But you also are smart enough to know not to scare him off before the wedding. So you don't really go to work on all those little things. You just keep your list. And then once, um, once there's a ring on his finger and he's not going anywhere, you go to work on the list, right? <laughs> and here's some things that we can do different. Here's some things that I can see in us, and I'd like to see it go this way or that way. And what, what, but what, unfortunately, you don't know is that he's kind of hunting other things. He's kind of moved on to something different. And so all of a sudden, the, the, these two people who came together with a willingness to give the very best of themselves to one another didn't think about it, just acted on that stuff all of a sudden begin to realize that life has changed a little bit, and they begin to kind of, if they're not careful, go in different directions. And, and he's hunting other things, and she kind of gets involved in other stuff, and they wake up one day, and they've noticed that they've moved into the drift. Now, for some couples, the drift, like Nan and I, looks like this. When we first got married, the drift was conflict, and it was, it was we didn't get along, and it was my opinion, her opinion, my agenda, her agenda, and we just didn't know how to deal with that kind of conflict, and so, man, we did this, and then it led to this. And for some of us, it's the best of intentions. We just move into life and schedules and things just kind of take over. You know, it's kind of like getting older. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm far more sedentary than I used to be. I used to be very active, played sports and did a lot of things. And I just don't get as much exercise as I used to. And along with that, as you get older, is a couple of love handles here and there and things don't work like they used to. And The same thing can happen if we're not careful with our relationships. We can get relationally sedentary. And we kind of lose our handle on how to love. But it's not like we mean to. And you kind of wake up one day and you go, what happened to that natural willingness to give the best of myself? To give the best of myself? And how is it that we came together so powerfully at one point in our lives in that way? But now we kind of lost our handle on how to love. You see, I think this thing called marriage really matters. Why, Ron? Why does it matter? Because it's the foundation of society? Well, yes, from a social perspective, that's very true. Because it's the foundation to uh, the economics of our culture? Well, actually, that's kind of interesting. Uh, There's a whole lot to be said about stability of marriage and family and as it relates to the economy. Yes, oh yeah, I suppose that's a reason. Because it's the bedrock of parenting. Well, that is true as well. I mean, marriage kind of really paves the way to good parenting and good parenting paves the way to the next generation obtaining faith and passing it to the next generation. And that's kind of God's plan from one generation to the next. So marriage has a whole lot to do with that as well. Why? Because marriage is important to our mental health and our physical health and our emotional health. Well, that's true as well. And, and just for the sake of the marriage, just because the marriage needs to be good, well, those are all good reasons. But I think really ultimately this marriage thing matters because it's where God disciples us. Think of the um, spiritual disciplines for a minute. What list would you come up with in your head for the spiritual? Well, there's fasting, there's prayer, there's silence and solitude, and um, yeah, and marriage. Because marriage is the place God grows you up. See, it's the place where he shows you who you are in relationship, in close, intimate connection with another person. And as it turns out, it's always the case, I have to grow up to be a better husband. I have to grow into somebody I wasn't 
when we got together so that I can be the kind of husband God has called me to be. I have to love the way Christ has loved me, and I'm not really good at that. And marriage is going to teach me how to be good at that, if I'll let it. Somebody said to me once, well, you know, if you have any selfishness, then you get married, and you'll discover how much you have in you. And if you have any leftover at that point, have kids. Then it'll really pull it out of you. And the whole process is us, is God refining us through those close, intimate relationships. You see, it's important because it's God's refining fire. I guess the question is, are we open to what God is doing in us? Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. That's a classic text looking at marriage. And this morning what I want us to do is kind of go back to it. I'm kind of hoping to offer maybe a fresh perspective about how this all fits together. So maybe we can learn something new. I know we've studied it a lot, but maybe we can learn something new. There's been so many books and sermons and texts having to do, uh, lessons having to do with this particular passage on marriage. But again, I want to try to offer something a little bit unique. There's a lot of layers to Ephesians chapter 5, and sometimes we kind of get caught up in the role discussion, the role of husbands and the role of wives. I want to see if we can't try to put it together and show you a complete picture of what I think is happening there. Just a little background. There's something really fascinating to me. I think Paul is answering a question here in Ephesians 5, and the question might be, how are we going to do the business of marriage? How are we going to, you take two people and you put them together, how are they going to work together, cooperate for God's glory? Well, I think Paul's going to answer that question, the business of marriage, if we could call it that. But he's going to answer it by answering another question. He's going to say, how did Christ love us? And that answer is going to also answer, how do we do the business of marriage together? All right? So hang on with me just for a minute. By the way, uh, by way of background, uh, interesting to me, a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine and some colleagues did a research study, and they, they interviewed 21,000 couples. And the number one thing that rose to the surface as being an issue that was common among both happy and unhappy, so it didn't matter if you had a vibrant marriage or a really distressed marriage, it turns out everybody kind of wrestles with this one. And the item was this, how do we do leadership in our marriage? How do we handle decision-making and power? in our marriage. I would call that business of marriage. You take two people, put them together. How are they going to get along? How are they going to be a team and lead the family and deal with that little power leadership question? I think that's one of the things that Paul's going to answer for us in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, Paul starts in verse 21 by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice the second half of that verse is your motivation. Why are we going to do all this stuff because Christ did it first, and you, you revere him, you honor him. And so here are the things I'm calling you to do to honor Christ. What are we going to have to start with? Submission, submit to one another. Um, and, and it's interesting, Paul is now going to look at three examples of what submission looks like. The first one is husband-wife relationships. The second one is parent-child relationships. And the third one, uh, also in, ch- in chapter 6, has to do with employers and employees, masters and slaves. And so those are the three examples. We're just going to look at the one related to husbands and wives. Then he goes into verse 22 and he starts talking to women. Now, when he talks to women and the submission word comes up, uh, sometimes ladies kind of go, oh, great, we're doing that submission conversation again. I hate that conversation. Well, just hang on for a minute because what I'd like to do is, again, kind of take a fresh perspective And so we're not going to start with the women. We're going to start with the men, and you'll see why in just a minute. So let's jump to verse 25. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pause. Every man in this room should be shaking in his boots right now. Did you, did you just hear what I just said? Let me read it again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That intimidates the fire out of me. If I look at that objectively and just stop right there and go, wow, that's my standard, that's what I'm called to, the same standard by which Christ has loved me, part of the church, all of a sudden I'm realizing this marriage thing may require more of me than I ever expected. Look what it required of Christ in order to love us. That's my standard. Wow. From here on out, he's going to reference her, gave himself up for her. Let's just realize that's us. That's the church. Okay, that's who he's talking about. So let's read it that way. He gave himself up for us to make us holy, cleansing us by the washing with water through the word and to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. So here again is the standard in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves himself, excuse me, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it, just as Christ does the church. There it again is that standard. It keeps coming back to as Christ does the church. We're going to feed and care and nourish our wives. I've often thought, you know, I, I like to eat a lot of food, and if I treated my wife the same way I treat my body with food, she ought to at least be pleasantly plump. You know what I'm talking about? You know, because I eat good things, and I desire to eat good things, and it would be nice if I desired to be able to feed and nourish her with those very same attitudes, feeding her good things. So, what does it mean? And uh, In 22, Paul talks about to women, wives submit to your husbands as he's the head of the church. What does it mean now for husbands to be the head of the wife? Well, apparently, we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. I guess you could say he gave the very best of himself. He cared enough about us to give the best of himself. And what was the result of that? What did he make us to be? Well, holy, blameless, cleansed, radiant, without stain, without any blemish apparently because of how christ loved us watch up here because of how christ loved us we were low because of our sin but he came and lifted us up he made us more than we could ever be we could never find holy and blameless and without stain or wrinkle all by ourselves but he made us to be able to do that because of his great sacrifice for us so because of his love he makes us more not less you know, I think it's unfortunate. Sometimes we read this passage about uh, men being the head of the wife, and we really are asking the question, oh, this is a statement about who's the boss in marriage. I had a couple one time, uh, I was counseling, and uh, we weren't talking about this, but they came in one day, it was like a Tuesday morning, and they said, we've got to ask you a question. Before we get started on us, we've got to ask you a question. Last Sunday at our church, our pastor was preaching out of Ephesians 5, and he said that that passage meant that if a man gets hungry in the middle of the night, his wife has no alternative but to get up and make him a sandwich. And they looked at me with this just dreaded look on their face, and they said, is that what Ephesians 5 teaches? And I said, well, okay, let me answer that question 
with another question. I said, if the standard by which husbands are to love their wives is is the standard by which Christ loved the church, and that is gave himself up for her and sacrificed everything for her and, and made the church more than she could ever be all by herself, when exactly was it that Jesus did that with the people around him? When is it that he all of a sudden, you know, used his power for his own personal benefit and gain? Would that have been before or after he washed the disciples' feet? Would, would that have been before or after Jesus decided to leave heaven and all its prominence and all his power and all his position and come down here and become a baby, for crying out loud, a helpless baby, and then become a child, and then become a, a, a young boy, and then become a teenager, and then become a man who has to work for a living, and then become a man who's walking with sandals on a dusty road, a road that leads to a cross where he's sacrificed and killed and rejected and spit on and mistreated. When was it that Jesus, did he have power when he walked on this earth? Absolutely. When was it that he used his power for his own personal gain? Never. Did he have authority while he was walking around? You bet he did. did he, when did he use his authority for his own personal gain? When did he demand that other people serve him? Never. As a matter of fact, he made the statement, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus used his power and his authority in the benefit of other people. He made us more than we could be any by ourselves. He was always looking out for the disenfranchised. He was always looking out for the underdog. He was always speaking up for people who were treated and mistreated unfairly and spoken down to and the legalism of the religious leaders. And he always spoke against that. That's when he got angry. That's when he stood up. But did he ever stand up when it was about him? Never. It was a constant giving of himself. Rather than taking from others. You see, he gave the best of himself constantly. This is not a passage about who's the boss. This is a passage about how you give the best of yourself. It's a passage about how you love. Brian Chappell wrote a book called Each for the Other. And he says this about authority. Authority is not the right to order others around for your own personal benefit. It's a responsibility. To arrange for a family's well-being. It seeks the good of others and it serves their best interests. Just like Christ did for us. So Christ's attitude becomes our standard for how we're supposed to love. To give the best of themselves and, do, and that's how we're called to love our wives. To love, honor, and cherish, oddly enough. Because that is the vow that you said in the beginning. Love, honor, and cherish. Make her feel prized. Because of how you treat her. Celebrate who she is. Empower her gifts. Help her to be more. Help her to be who God is calling her to be. Help her to to grow into the places that God puts her in life. Encourage her. Make decisions that bring security to her world. Make decisions that bring security to the children. Do things that put the family in the way that God has called you to be. Not anything that your, your agenda for yourself, but the, in the agenda that God has for your family. And when you work in those directions, it makes her more. Now, guys, let me suggest something to you. If you can do this, if you could love her that much, and she can become convinced of that, and she trusts you beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's your heart in being her husband, two things are going to happen, all right? Number one, you're going to try to give and give the best of yourself, but you will never outgive your wife. I don't know what it is. I just think women are built-in givers. Go ahead, give it a shot. I don't think you can outgive her. She's going to outgive you in response to you trying to give the best of yourself. But number two, she would follow you to the ends of the earth if she knew this about you. 
she'll go anywhere because you're the safest thing on the planet for her. Now, now let's read verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What, what kind of husband? The one who's beating you down? No, the one who's lifting you up. What kind of husband? The one who's got in his agenda and you're the one who's supposed to make him the sandwich when he gets hungry? No, the husband who's making sure that you are everything that God has called you to be and he's taking care of the family and he's looking out for you. And you can trust him beyond a shadow of a doubt. Submit to that guy. Hey, that's not a problem. Because I know he's got my back. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as Christ submits to, excuse me, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Literally in Paul's day, submission was a military term. It had a connotation. And watch this. So it's like two generals walk into the room together. They're the equal rank. Now we got a problem. How are we going to do the business of leadership when you have two people of equal rank? Now notice that. If there's anything inherent in, in this submission headship kind of dialogue it's that husbands and wives have equal rank (laughs) that's the problem so to speak to paul right you come in you have equal value before god you have equal rank if you will before god you have equal worth before god how are you going to do life so he's going to say i'm going to call upon women to volunteer this general is going to voluntarily say you know what i'm with you it's not that I'm under you and I'm, I'm subservient and I matter less. I am of equal ver- worth. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to cooperate with you in how we do life together, how we do the business of marriage together. But you know what? That's cool because she's got a husband who's looking out for her and trying to make sure she is more than she could ever be all by herself. And she's going to outgive him because she just can naturally do that. But he's looking out and making sure the family is secure and safe and he's doing his part to be responsible because she's... And guess what, folks? Now all of a sudden we have a competition, all right? But we don't have a competition of who's the boss. We have a competition of kindness. A competition of kindness. Is there anybody in here who's not up for that one? That doesn't sound attractive to you? Oh, ironically enough, that is how it all started. When you had the natural willingness to give the best of yourself, you ended up with a competition of kindness. And that's how you won one another's hearts. And it takes us all the way back to where we started with the best heart and the best tension of willingness to give the absolute best of who we are. How do we love? By denying ourselves, by putting selfishness aside, by putting on a spirit of kindness and giving the best of ourselves in the loving service of the other person just like Christ did for us. I like to call that a Christ-inspired Ephesians 5 marriage. Christ-inspired, out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5 marriage. Okay, Ron, well, that's a great concept. How do we do it? Well, let me just give you one illustration of how you actually put that into action. And and, and i got to admit, this one comes the hard way. I learned this one the hard way through trial and error in our marriage. When Nan and I were dating, I kind of developed this habit of buying um, her a flower. Uh, it turned out to be a red rose because she loved roses, and, and uh, it, was, it was the thing, right? So I just kind of started buying her, and I was poor, <laughs> so I could buy one, 
And on occasion, I would do that. Well, we got married, and the habit continued. And one day, I was driving home from work, and I thought, oh, man, it is, I haven't bought a flower and I don't know how long. I better do that. So I made a quick detour, ran by the flower shop, ran in there and said, you know what? Um, this red rose thing, she's, she's bound to be getting tired of that. So why don't I do something different? Come on, Ron, be creative. Um, let's keep it in the rose category. That's definitely her favorite. Yellow, that's a beautiful flower one. I'll take one long-stemmed yellow rose. I hopped in the car, I'm driving home, and I have to admit, I just, there was a pride in me at that moment. I was thinking all the way home, Ron, you are such a stud. <laughs> you know what's coming, the big hug, the big kiss, and I'm so lucky to have a man like you. I love that moment, you know? I just love that when she gives that to me. So I drive in the driveway, the garage door goes up, I'm sneaking in through the kitchen, and sure enough, she's in there, and I got the flower behind my back, and sneak up behind her, kind of startled her a little bit, you know, spun her around, hey, babe, just want you to know I'm thinking about you today. And on this occasion, I got a little bit different reaction. It went a little bit like this. Oh, well, thank you. She turned, and she went about her business. No big sloppy kiss. No big hug and you're my man stud. Nothing. I got to say it. I was really hurt. I was disappointed. So I did the only thing that made sense to me in that moment. I pouted for three days. <laughs> because, you know, you have to let the other person know that you're hurt, right? But I can't actually use words because that would be too direct. So I have to be passive aggressive. And just kind of let it lie, you know, but give her the looks and the cold shoulder. And then eventually she comes back to me and she'll say she's sorry and we'll be able to rectify this. But three days go by and she doesn't come back to me, so I'm getting tired. So I go to her and I said, hey, what's the deal with the rose? And she says to me, oh, it's no big deal. And I said, oh, yes, it is. What's the deal with the rose? She says, I don't know, Ron, it's just somewhere back in junior high. Somebody told me red means love and yellow means friendship. Nobody told me that in junior high. <laughs> and we went to the same junior high for crying out loud. Now, inside my head, I had this thought at that moment and went a little bit like, um, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Do you have any idea how many women in the world wish they had a husband like me who was thoughtful and kind and would go get a flower and bring it home and surprise you with that, but you're reacting this way just because it's yellow? Thank the Lord I didn't say that. That is exactly what I was thinking And that's when the Holy Spirit had to get a hold of me and do a little gut check. Because in that moment, I realized that I had a calculating love. I knew how much I was willing to give for her, and the bottom line was I expected her her to be happy with that. Am I buying, buying the flower for me, or am I buying the flower for her? Well, apparently I was buying it for me. But if I'm buying for her, I've just learned something about how to love her better. See, if I care enough to give the best of myself, I'm going to let her define what's loving and serving and pleasing for her. And I'm not going to necessarily make her deal with the kind of love I'm willing to give. We have a whole bunch of people running around in marriage in, this, in, in our culture who have a calculating love. And they've decided how much they're going to give. They've decided what it's going to sacrifice of them. And they've decided when they get to the end of that, I'm done. You're just going to have to deal with that. and You're going to have to be happy with that. But oddly enough, they didn't start that way. They didn't have that willingness. That was that, they had the willingness to give the best of themselves when they started. But somewhere along the road, we kind of decide we shouldn't have to do that anymore. Aren't you glad your Lord didn't make that decision about 
us. I don't know, just, you know, going down there, that earth, that cross thing, that's going to take a lot. Nah. We created them, that should be enough. You see, Christ-inspired Ephesians 5 sacrificial marriage means letting the other person pick the restaurant every once in a while. Sure, it means stuff like that. It means not bickering over whose turn it is to get up at 3 a.m. with the kids when they need somebody to take care with them or do you keep score and have a calculating love about that? Or does a Christ-inspired sacrificial marriage mean learning how to face conflict when you'd really rather avoid it? That was me. We got married. Let me tell you how big of a conflict avoider I was. I fell asleep on my wife twice during the middle of an argument. (laughs) And she didn't stab me to death in my sleep. I thank God for that. Can you believe that? I fell asleep on her in the middle of an argument. I could avoid conflict like the best of them. And I had to learn how to stay engaged. I had to learn to stay awake was one thing. I had to learn how to stay engaged was another. How to bring my best self, how to manage my tongue, how to control my emotions, how to manage my fear and all the stuff rising up inside of me when we get into a conflict. I had to learn how to do all that stuff. I didn't have a clue I was going to have to do that when I got married. I didn't know that was going to be required of me. Sacrificial marriage means doing something kind for the other person when it's not Mother's Day or Father's Day or an anniversary or a birthday, but just because. It means reading a book about relationships when you'd rather be golfing again. It means humbly receiving feedback from them when they say, you know what? That hurt me. That really bothers me. And then you got to sit there and you got to bite your lip. And instead of getting defensive, sacrificial marriage means taking a deep breath and saying, you're right. I did it. I got to own that. I'm sorry. I didn't know I was going to have to learn to do all that stuff. But giving the best of yourself means exactly that. Life is going to teach you. God is going to teach you who you have to become to be a good partner, husband or wife. The question is, are you listening? Being married is like being the farmer in Mark chapter 5. Okay, do you guys remember the, mar- the farmer with the demon-possessed pigs? You guys remember the story? No, you don't remember the story because you've not thought about it from his point of view. Let me help you get there, okay? See, here's the story. Farmer Brown's out one day. He's a rich man. He's got a couple thousand pigs, and they're just kind of grazing, or I don't know what they're doing, basking in the sun. But on the hillside next to him is Jesus and his disciples and a man with a legion of demons in him. Now you remember the story? And Jesus is going to interact with this man and he is going to cast the legion of demons out of this man into Farmer Brown's pigs. Have you guys ever stopped to think about that guy? He's a rich man and then Jesus comes. He doesn't ever bother to ask Farmer Brown, can I borrow your pigs? Um, are they available? Because we have a need over here. He doesn't ask. Sometimes the Savior doesn't ask Ron what he ha- is willing to sacrifice. Sometimes he just demands of me. This is what I need you to do, Ron. That's what it is to be married. You didn't know this day was going to turn. You didn't know you were going to have to learn or look at that piece of yourself or change that part of you. You didn't know you were going to have to look in the mirror and become a different person in order to love your your, your wife well. But I'm going to demand it of you. This poor farmer, I mean, this guy, he's a rich man in the beginning, and think what happens, you know. He's got 2,000 pigs filled with demons. They run down the hill. Remember the story? They run down the hillside. They drown themselves in the nearby lake. His inventory now consists of 2,000 dead, demon-possessed pigs bobbing up and down 
in the lake. The guy's completely broke. He has nothing. He's bankrupt, unless I guess he can find a market for deviled ham in a hurry. He is just completely... Okay, that was over the top. I know. So what do you get when you have two people who are loving this way? Giving the best of themselves out of reverence for Christ. You get a competition of kindness. And who are we being like? Christ. And who do we honor? Christ. And who do we give a testimony to the world about? Christ. One story, and we're done. A family therapist went to a 50th wedding anniversary, and, um, you know, that's always a big celebration, right? Not many people make it that far, and so he waited his opportunity, and the woman finally got off by herself, and nobody was talking to her, so he went over to her, and he said, hey, ma'am, congratulations. It's a wonderful accomplishment, and I just got to ask you, what's, you know, what's your secret? Help me out. And she, her response startled him. She said, well, you got to understand, I've been married to five different men. And he's going, what? And he's trying to do the math in his head. And, and she says, well, no, you don't understand. It just seems like I've been married to five different men. She said, when I married this man, he was lively, handsome, trim young man with idealistic dreams. And then he changed into a man focused intensely on work and making a living. So he started hunting his career. He was like a different man. I did not love the new man at first, but I learned how to love him. Just when it seemed I'd gotten used to the new one, he changed again. He went through what's called today a midlife crisis, only we didn't know about it in those days. He became disinterested in work, dissatisfied and disillusioned about being the breadwinner and all that, and I had to learn how to love him all over again in that stage. You think this woman had any unexpected sacrifices? But then he came out of that and he settled into his older years, and now, now he has a wisdom and a depth that I really appreciate. But look over there, and she pointed to where her husband was. She says, that doesn't look like the man I married. This one has saggy skin and a bit of a pot belly. But I've learned how to love that man in the saggy body, too. Huh. You know, if you're married and you've been married a while and you're here today with that person, don't look now, but they might not look like the per- I mean, don't look now, okay? <laughs> They might not look like the person you married. Might have saggy skin, love handles. But it doesn't mean you have to lose your handle on how to love. Find again the heart and the willingness to give the best of yourselves. You had it. It was there. It can be there. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, it can be there. The willingness to give the best of yourself. And begin to act and love the way Christ has loved you. And you'll keep your handle on how to love. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your loving kindness, for your dedication to us. In spite of who we are, God, in spite of our frailties and our faults, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus not only to be our Savior, but to demonstrate for us what it is to be a loving husband to be a loving wife so that we can have marriages that reflect your glory and pay honor to you. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.